Hello and welcome to The Book Album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hello and herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Still fighting the bronchitis. It's been six weeks now and it will go away eventually, but thank you all for your patience with my voice going in and out and having strange things happen to it during all of the episodes in the past two, two and a half months. I am thrilled because today we're going over the short story Tomorrow by William Faulkner, supposedly one of the lesser well-known short stories not only from Faulkner in general but also from this collection. It's the fourth short story that appears in the collection. If you haven't heard the other three episodes that we've done on this wonderful collection, Night's Gambit by William Faulkner, and we're reading the new edition by the way, edited by John N. Duval, which I think is just a masterful de-editing quote-unquote of these short stories. I'm, I've become quite obsessed actually with his methodology for reviewing and editing these stories again. But that aside, this mini-series on William Faulkner will take us all the way up until the first week in October, if I'm not mistaking, and we've been starting this all in July, so it's a six-episode mini-series. I'm trying to space the episodes out so that those of you who are not as thrilled about Faulkner as I am uh, have some room to breathe, but uh, I would highly, highly recommend picking up a copy of Night's Gambit or reading some of these short stories as they touch you. So in terms of tomorrow and all of the biographical informational content on the short story, I'm just going to read from the introduction of Night's Gambit edited by John Duval again. And these are pages XXIV and XXV in the introduction. Quote, Tomorrow is another story where the paper trail limits what I'm able to do. As I pointed out in my comments on Hands Upon the Waters above, none of the accepted or copyrighted typescripts for the post stories survive. With Tomorrow, there's only one typescript at Virginia with a number of handwritten editions. While this draft is fairly close to the published story, it is clearly not the submitted typescript because it lacks Faulkner's name and Oxford, Mississippi on the first page, details that mark typescripts Faulkner intended for submission. In fact, this typescript even lacks a title. With Tomorrow, then, I have hewn more closely to the first edition. In the absence of a final typescript, I have not felt justified in restoring complete paragraphs from the early typescript where the material has been slightly reordered in the post version, and thus in the first edition. Duval goes on to say that in terms of the Faulknerian style, the edits that he did make were to include these longer phrases or in some cases longer paragraphs that were in the draft that he found and not in the published short story. In the Saturday Evening Post, which again was Faulkner's favored magazine because they paid $1,000 per short story and he indeed did publish 18 
different short stories in the Saturday Evening Post between 1930 and 1957. This short story in particular, I forgot to mention, was published in 1940. Faulkner and Duvall mentions this in a couple different sentences in this introduction, decided in his editing process to add rather than omit or delete text, and so his editing process was rather generative rather than limiting to the pieces that he wrote. And so if there's a difference of a piece or a section of the work where it's actually cut rather than added, then that's a signal that that wasn't Faulkner's doing, it was an editor's doing. And again, the editors of all of these different magazines, whether it's Harper's where Smoke was published or Scribner's where Monk was published originally or we're going to have um, in one of the later episodes, An Error in Chemistry, um, a very different publishing audience with a detective short story magazine. Um, I think it's called Ellery Queen's Detective Fiction or something like that. Um, these different publishing houses and these different publications have very different audiences. And so when considering the changes that are made, oftentimes the editors are catering to a certain type of reader and that often didn't line up with the purely Faulknerian ideas that Faulkner put into the text. So in the last short story we reviewed, A Hand Upon the Waters, a lot of the exposition was cut, for example, and that was probably because there was a mismatch between a slow, lengthy exposition and the kind of audience or maybe the kind of editor that wanted a very plot-driven story. And indeed, Duval connects this story to Hand Upon the Waters quite a bit because it was published in 1939 and this short story a year later in 1940. So um, there's a lot of connections between not only the relative world with Gavin Stevens in which these two short stories were published, but also also the conditions uh, under which they were published. And in all my research about um, Tomorrow, because this one did require a lot more research for me than some of the other short stories, um, I came across the little tidbit that this short story collection, not the individual short stories of course, but the collection altogether called Night's Gambit was published in 1949, which is also the year that Faulkner won the Nobel Prize. Um, and apparently he didn't receive the prize until 1950. I would have to dig in more into that whole situation to give you all more details, but you know, some quick, quick searching online will definitely give you some of the stories. And I also have some links in the description for this episode at relevanceofliterature.com slash notes under this episode, under tomorrow, um, for more information in case you are curious. A big piece that I wanted to talk about with regard to this story is the film adaptation, which was released in 1972, and it stars Robert Duvall, in case you're interested. Um, there's a particular emphasis in the film adaptation. It's not really an adaptation, I would more so call it an expansion on the short story. 
it does loosely follow the plot, but there's a huge character focus on the main character, Jackson Fentry. And the plot of the short story is that there's um, a murder that takes place and there's a man in the town, the murderer, who should be, by all moral reasonings of the time, acquitted because the young man who was already married, um, by the way, ran off with this murderer, the person's daughter. And so when he encounters him again, he shoots him dead. And Gavin Stevens is a younger lawyer at this time, and he's taking on this case, and he believes that justice was on his side, arguing for the man's acquittal in court. And yet, there is one person on the jury who will not let this man free. And that man, who's holding up the entire jury, is named Jackson Fentry. And he will not let this person go. So it's about his story, largely. Gavin Stevens drives not only to the Fentry farm, but then ends up going to the neighbor's house. And getting the entire story from the neighbors who have also taken part in all of the events that have transpired years earlier to influence Jackson Fentry's decision. The neighbors tell Gavin Stevens that Fentry at one point, the younger Fentry, there's two, there's the older, senior, and then the younger. The younger had gone to work at a mill far away, like long distance away um, for a period and it was kind of out of the blue he just left for the mill ends up finding work there ends up um, even living at the mill for a time and really gaining the trust of the um, owners of the mill and doing an outstanding job from all accounts he ends up getting married, and whether this marriage is like completely legitimate is unclear in the short story because the woman with whom he marries is pregnant at the time of their marriage from another man and this man who she was previously married to. And so the neighbor thinks that it's likely that as soon as she told him that she was pregnant, he cut and run. And so she ends up in Jackson Fentry's care, dies during childbirth, and then when the second Christmas after he leaves, when the birth of the child occurs, he brings back this baby boy um, to the farm, raises him by himself, apparently weans him on goat's milk, which is amazing to me. Um, and takes care of the boy for a while, like until the boy's like sitting up, like, you know, kind of active, like there's, there's development going on. So this boy is fairly old by the time that the family, the former wife's family comes and takes the boy back with them because legally the boy belongs to their family because there was no biological relationship between Fentry and the boy. Um, even though Fentry was solely responsible for this child his entire life, and I'm sure that it was completely, this is my own speculation by the way, but I'm sure it was completely traumatic for this child um, and probably explains a little bit of 
the um, tramp that he ends up becoming later in life. But um, yeah, this family takes the boy um, from Funtry and Funtry goes on to continue living his embittered existence on his farm. And so this boy ends up being the person who is running around with the other farmer's daughter and gets killed. So Fentry is not voting against, uh, is not voting for the release or the acquittal of the man who killed the person he thought was his son. And the person really effectively was his son. So that's the very somewhat like predictable in my eyes. As a reader, I was like, I know where this is going. Um, but also like horribly coincidental story. And as I said, the film version, now moving to the film adaptation, it does focus a lot on the character development of Jackson Fentry, played by Robert Duvall. And like I said before, it's less of like a reenactment re of the short story, like word for line for line, than an expansion or a study on the situation that takes place. Just as an aside, I would have loved to see a, sh a film adaptation of Monk um, by William Faulkner. I think that would have been an amazing film. <laughs> so if there's any budding filmmakers out there, or established filmmakers too, uh, you might want to look into them. I feel like it would be amazing. Um, I've been hearing about all of these short, short film adaptations um, on Mirakami's short works and I am now very curious to see if there's credibility to everybody telling me that the film adaptations of Murakami are so so good. Um, and I watched this film adaptation actually of Tomorrow and I really enjoyed it. I thought it was, um, I mean it's dated, right? There's, there, you have to have grace about that. Um, there's some like gender norms and things that just wouldn't pass today. Um, but yeah, it was, it was kind of nostalgic almost for a time that I've never lived. Um, and yeah, it just really dives into this character of Fentry with, um, Robert Duvall, which I really enjoyed. And technically the film is also, I found it to be a little bit like experimental, kind of fun. There's all, there's a scene where Fentry is walking around and he's first at the mill right before the um, woman, Miss Smith, who his future wife who's pregnant, um, comes on the scene and he's, you know, walking through the woods, getting firewood. And there's all these amazing angles on him. Like they're putting the camera like on the ground at one point, like, you know, high above. Uh, right at his face, like the playfulness with the camera and the edit, I really enjoyed. So um, technically the film was actually quite good as well. I'm just going to read some of the beginning of this short story on page 63 of the edition, just to get some sense of how this story feels to read. A lot of the story is dialogue, but I'm not going to read a lot of the dialogue. But I'll read some of this exposition here. Quote, My uncle, Gavin Stevens, had not always been county attorney. But the time when he had not been was more than 20 years ago, and it had lasted for such a short period that only the old men remembered it, and even some of them did not. 
because in that time he had had but one case. He was a young man then, 28, only a year out of the State University Law School where, at grandfather's instigation, he had gone after his return from Harvard and Heidelberg. And he had voluntarily taken the case, persuaded grandfather to let him handle it alone, which grandfather did because, due to the victim's known character and the circumstances, the trial would be a mere formality even if the defendant had not had self-defense to plead. So he tried the case. Years afterward, he still said it was the only case, either as a private defender or a public prosecutor, in which he was convinced that right and justice were on his side that he ever lost. Though actually, he did not lose it. A hung jury and a mistrial in the autumn court term, an acquittal in the following spring term, the defendant a solid, well-to-do farmer, husband and father too, from a section called Frenchman's Bend in the remote southeastern corner of the county. The victim was a swaggering bravo, calling himself Buck Thorpe, and called Buck Snort by the other young men whom he had subjugated with his fist during the three years he had been in Frenchman's Bend. Kinless, who had appeared overnight from nowhere, a brawler, a gambler, known, Uncle Gavin learned this only while preparing his case, since into that corner of the county even sheriffs seldom penetrated, and in it people were born and died and were buried without certificates from county authorities. To be, page 64, a distiller of illicit whiskey and caught once on the road to Memphis with a small drove of stolen cattle, which the owner promptly identified. He had a bill of sale for them, but none in the country knew the name which was signed to it, and the toddy story itself was old and unoriginal enough. The country girl of 17, her imagination fired by the swagger and the proven physical prowess, and the daring and the tongue glib with explanations, the father who tried to reason with her and got exactly as far as parents usually do in such cases. Then the interdiction, the forbidden door, the inevitable elopement at midnight, and at four o'clock the next morning, Bookwright waked Will Varner, the justice of the peace and the chief officer of the beat, handed his pistol butt first to Varner and said, I have come to surrender. I killed Thorpe two hours ago. Unquote. What strong writing. Like, it's thrilling reading this short story and all the other ones too, but... <laughs> It's just, it's such strong writing. Something that I read in a review that's in the show notes um, linked on the website is that there's this sense that Stevens is kind of otherworldly, like he doesn't belong. And that's definitely highlighted in on the first page in the second paragraph where um, the nephew of Gavin Stevens, which is another interesting tidbit, like Sherlock Holmes and DuPont, like they're not narrated by Holmes and DuPont oftentimes. It's narrated by like other people who are also there and these stories are the same way. Um, they're narrated by Stevens's nephew and so it's important to note that like Gavin Stevens is not um, giving us his first person perspective during the stories. Rather it's sort of this it's a first person perspective from the nephew but it is in a sense more distance. Um, so he kind of acts like an omniscient narrator in some cases, um, but it's not an omniscient narrator. Um, just the I voice doesn't come in that often. Um, and some of it is secondhand, etc. Um, and just in, as an aside, I'm not speaking about like all of the short stories. There's different like narrative voices that um, 
appear throughout, but in this particular short story, as you can tell from the beginning, it's narrated by um, the nephew. But in general, very interesting is kind of this almost like pretend omniscient narrative voice where it's it does seem like so like third person, you know, bird's eye view of the plot. It's very interesting um, for a first person narration. So Gavin Stevens's distance, not only from this society, but also kind of from the people in it. And um, when he sits at the kitchen table at the neighbors and, you know, they're telling this story, he'll often pause and he'll say, like, stop. And then he'll think for a minute and then he'll say, tell me. Um, and it's just kind of like push and pull between um Stevens's inner world and the outer circumstances in which he lives and there's definitely a discrepancy between those two things Stevens's inner world and his inner experiences and thoughts and his person even and this outside society um, and that tension continues to play out in all of the short stories not only this one but in particular in this one there's also a theme throughout many of these short stories about the injustice of the justice system. So, right, this person is pleading um, self-defense. In this case, it seems like a done deal that he will be acquitted. Even though it is a murder-manslaughter case, it's um, a particular story where it's immediately recognizable to the members of the jury as something that he quote-unquote, in this case, should be acquitted for. So again, this kind of sense of Gavin Stevens knowing what's right, knowing what's just in these set of circumstances. He knows the case best, right? And then at the same time, Jackson Fentry, the, basically the father of this, um, you know, killed party, being a member of the jury, which is not just and not right, you know, that should not happen. Um, and even so, having these stories um, permeate through the legal decision-making in this part of the country. Another question that I thought was very, very interesting for this short story in particular was the balance of love and how far love extends in this short story. Um, it seems that Jackson Fentry, as hardened to life and his circumstances as he is, has like a huge heart. Like the way that he cared for the child's taking on non-traditional like male duties, you know, at this time and feeding the kid goat milk, sewing his clothes, you know, like the extent that he goes to raise this child and to raise him as well as he can is remarkable um, and the love has clearly extended beyond their parting um, to the day that um, the person he sees as his son dies um, and so that, that was a really I think um, a theme that touched me quite a bit as a reader as I was reading knowing that there's this contrast of Fentry's outer world kind of similar to Gavin Stevens in that sense and his like inner feelings and his ability even to express those feelings in the outer world um you know he's very like action motivated and does just so much for this little boy um and yet you know is unwilling 
I think, you know, within his own perspective, rightly so, to acquit the man who murdered his, or killed his son. So I think in this short story, most important I found was character, and right? That has explored in the um, 1972 film adaptation of the short story, and also relationships, right? The relationship between Funtry and his neighbors, the relationship between Gavin Stevens and his nephew at a certain point, his nephew kind of looking up to his uncle in several ways throughout this short story, especially in the introduction which we read, um, relationship between Fentry and the um, his son, for a lack of a better explanation. There's just this really beautiful interwoven web of relationships and other connections in this story um, that's just brought up to the fore when Stevens is uh, hearing the story of how everything has happened from the neighbors. All right, that is all for today. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed preparing it for you. And the next short story, which we will analyze on the show, is An Error in Chemistry. That won't come out for a couple of weeks due to other scheduling on the show, but definitely check out the previous three episodes we've done. I also have an Etsy store. I keep forgetting to mention this. I really should get better at (laughs) putting this in more naturally, Um, but I have an Etsy store. It's linked in the description under this episode in your Spotify or in your Google or wherever you're listening to this. Um, If you would like to look at the Etsy store, please be my guest. I have put a ton of work into the Etsy store and I would love it if you all could support and give some love there. Thank you all so much and I'll see you next week. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.